One of the rules in business that's really important for any entrepreneur to remember is when you're hot, don't stop. You cannot dilly-dally. You have to keep the fire going. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. All right. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I have been anticipating this podcast interview, so I'm thrilled to have Asha Abalasha from Mason Dixie Foods join me today. Thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Christy. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit just about the company and how you started it? And I have a a million questions for you that I know my listeners are going to want to hear, but let's start with that. Talk about what Mason Dixie is to you and how you got here. We started Mason Dixie actually as a restaurant concept. I left a career in tech and automotive and I climbed that corporate ladder in less than 15 years and kind of got really tired of hitting the glass ceiling. Quite frankly, I always say it's a glass floor because the expectations are never that women can get those opportunities in a lot of these industries. So I didn't want to wait 30 years for my turn. And so I decided to kind of go out on my own and thinking about what I wanted to do. Food has always been a part of my life. My parents had a small carryout grocery store concept and they used to serve Southern comfort food out of the store. And it was quite frankly, always bustling and booming. And I remember just seeing every type of person from every walk of life coming in and out of those doors and enjoying what my mom made. Comfort food is supposed to be handmade, made from scratch ingredients. And honestly, if you really take it all the way back when African-American slaves were making this food, I mean, it was straight up plucked from the earth and put on the table. And we really got away from that. I thought it was a travesty that KFC and Popeye's were global representations of American comfort cuisine. That's not at all what I grew up on. And so in thinking about how to come to fruition on a food concept, I was in Washington, D.C. at the time, and all around me were these great, fast, casual concepts that were blooming and doing better for you food in a really good way, right? There was Sweet Green, there was Five Guys, there was Kava, there was a lot of energy around new styles of food service. And so I wanted a piece of that. And I thought at least there was the right amount of mentorship and activity in the city for me to really do it well. And lo and behold, I tried to pull the concept together and I thought, okay, center on better for you comfort food. And then what is going to pull it all together? And at that time, back then, Panera was still doing quite well. And I always thought that their focus on the bread was so important because when you think about anything there, no matter what you get, right? They're like, you get a piece of baguette, right? Yes. And so I was like, okay, well, what is more quintessentially American than a biscuit? Mm-hmm. And where have you actually had one that was good, right? It's always in some hoity-toity fine dining establishment, right. right? I mean, I paid, I, I went to a steakhouse not too long ago, and I think I paid $16 for six biscuits. And I was like, this is horrifying. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to bring that magic of the handcrafted biscuit to the fold. And so, you know, fast forward. We launched the restaurant concept on Kickstarter because first of all, I'm not a celebrity chef and it was the time where Top Chef was taking over and everyone wanted to know your credentials. I'm a good cook, but I'm not, I'm not a qualified chef. 
And so I wanted to come out the gate in a smart marketing way to get energy around the concept. And so I launched the concept on Kickstarter, not for the money as much as it was the exposure. And it was the best move I ever made because back then Kickstarter was still kind of a 1-800-MY-IDEA type site, right? Mostly inventions oriented. We were the second or third food concept on the site. So wasn't sure if it was the right venue, except that I knew that media attention would get there. So even if we didn't get funded on it, I knew we would get media. So I ended up getting the site up. And the one thing I think that was a magical conclusion of it was, one, we did get fully funded, but two, every single backer sent us a personal message. Amazing. And it was like stories, anecdotes, recipes, photos about why biscuits mean so much to them. Unprompted. It wasn't like I said, give me a dollar and send me your story, right? This is just what happens. And if you fast forward to when we had the restaurant, no one ever sat down and ate in silence. You know, when they walked in the restaurant, they're dancing to the music. They're like, ooh, 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 can't wait to eat. You know, it's like that, like good yeah. food dance. And so when you, when you think about it, you know, when we started the concept, it was really about selling happiness in all aspects, right? And food can do that to you. It is a natural serotonin yeah. release to have tasty comforting food. And so we got the Kickstarter thing started. Then we got all this like crazy demand for trying the product, right? And I was like, well, hang on, it's a concept. Clearly on the Kickstarter campaign, it said need money for a prototype, but I wasn't going to ignore it. And I think one of the rules in business that's really important for any entrepreneur to remember is when you're hot, don't stop. You cannot dilly dally. You have to keep the fire going. It's like building your own outdoor fire, right? You got to keep stoking it. So really quickly stood up in a gelato factory in the hood, right? And was like, all right, we could sell 60 biscuits. It'll be fine. You know, people will get a taste. We'll get some attention. It'll be fine. But lo and behold, we had lines wrapped around four city blocks starting at 7.30 in the morning for eight hours. And then we ran out of food. I had to call bartender friends that were just waking up to go run to Costco to get me more flour. I mean, it was just insane. And then we did it again a second day and we got an offer for a stall in a food hall about a mile away from the factory. So that really gave us a storefront and it was kind of an immediate one. And I mean, there were challenges. It was 80 square feet. There was one outlet. There was one hand sink. So it Mm -hmm. wasn't like there was a lot you could do. So we actually pioneered the first pop-up concept, right? By using a commercial kitchen to bring food into a retail center without violating any food laws and anything like that. But I mean, day one, we opened at 7.30 in the morning. That market really didn't open until I think nine. Even the coffee shop didn't open until nine. But we brought so much traffic that the coffee shop started opening at 7.30 with us. And then the That's flower right. shop opened and then the rest of the grocery store opened. So it really created a thriving community. And from a grassroots perspective, we couldn't have done it any better. And then fast forward just a few months in, we had a secret shopper from Whole Foods come in and mm-hmm. ask us to make the biscuits available in grocery. And I was like, no clue how to do this. But again, stoke the fire, right? So took some biscuits off the line, put them on a tray, put them in the freezer, came back the next day and baked them off and they were gorgeous. So I went to Bed Bath & Beyond where all dreams start. And I bought... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I bought a, them. <laughs> yeah, right? Yes. Um, and then I bought a $100 food saver machine and started vacuum sealing them. We put them in an igloo cooler on ice because we didn't have a freezer plug. And lo and behold, those biscuits sold faster than the hot food. And that was kind of the start of 
where are we going? Right. Like, are we going to be a restaurant? Are we going to be a product company? Are we going to be both? So that was really the start of when I realized that like we were onto something. I just didn't quite know what. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. First of all, I mean, having lines around the block, that's phenomenal. So I really think that's cool. And you obviously, I mean, you said something that I, I don't think I've heard anyone say in those words, when you're hot, don't stop. Like that's really important to remember. And it's hard, I think for some people, because you get tired, right? Oh yeah. And it's a lot, a lot of work and it's all on you and you're cobbling together resources. So I think that's incredible that you did that. So when did you know, I mean, I sort of think I know the answer to this, but you thought you had a restaurant concept and you did. And then you also had a grocery concept. So what did you do with those two ideas? It took about nine months to get the grocery store package together. And I really didn't know if this was going to be just a marketing gimmick to bring people to the restaurant or vice versa. And then our first day at Whole Foods, it was the day before Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh. Now that we're talking about it. Wow. It's been it's so close six to years. Yeah. Myself, I'd brought on a business partner to help me manage the consumer products. His name's Ross Perkins. And Ross and I got up at the butt crack of dawn and we baked off 300 samples and we brought them to Whole Foods. And we were only allowed to be there at like 7.30 in the morning to 10.30 because we weren't technically even allowed to demo at that time. Oh, wow. And then the biscuits flew off the shelf. We sold 130 some odd cartons in three hours Mm -hmm. and we beat butter and milk sales that day. That went viral through the Whole Foods ecosystem. So everybody wanted it. And that's when I was like, okay, how do we balance this? Because I was really hoping we were going to be in like four, (laughs) not, you know, 64. So we ended up having to think through the next phase of life. And it was, we were outgrowing the commercial kitchen. They didn't even have enough freezer space for us. So that was becoming a challenge. So I was like, I was driving through the hood, looking for places with parking lots. And in in an urban area like DC, there's not a lot of properties that have that. We ended up finding one. It was an old burnt down Wendy's drive-through and it had a huge parking lot. So we ended up putting a frozen reefer trailer in the parking lot so we could have external freezer space. It had a pretty decent freezer as it was. And we were making biscuits out the back of the restaurant while servicing out the front and moving product in and out of that parking lot. So, I mean, you have to be pretty ingenuitive to like, yeah, with these ideas and ride that line, right? Is that legal today? Probably not. Was it <laughs> illegal then? No. So you you have to kind of find every gray area you can and capitalize yeah. on it. So I think at that point we were trying to balance two. There were a lot of issues with the property because we went in there in less than three months. So we ended up pivoting and moving the restaurant to a standalone area while we were working on manufacturing offsite at a much larger manufacturer. So we ended up going to a co-man relationship so we could really scale because it was it 2017 is when we opened that restaurant. That year we got requests from Publix and Kroger. So we couldn't do what we were doing anymore. We had to start building inventory and really doing it right. So that was the year foundationally that the company really split and we had a restaurant concept and a consumer product concept. Really hard to manage both. I don't encourage it (laughs) as a startup, but it was crucial, right? I mean, the restaurant was a test kitchen. It was a marketing vehicle. It was a brand builder, right? I wouldn't take anything away from that experience. We unfortunately had to close the restaurant last summer because of COVID. We were in a high foot traffic zone for university students and without university students, it was really hard. But it was also kind of a good thing because in the end, our frozen business went up 400% 
And we couldn't have done both well, right? We just couldn't. So can you talk for a minute about, I mean, there's so many questions I have, but can you talk a little bit about your background? Because it's a very unique story. You went from a tech background and automotive of all things into a food startup. And I always think it's interesting when you come from another industry or another way of life, because you have a unique perspective on things. So could you talk about that a little bit? Did that help you? Did it hurt you? Well, first of all, I got started in transportation engineering a long time ago. I was in the marketing department. I only was using it to get into international development, which never happened. And I ended up working for a consulting firm out in LA that I had some pretty rad clients. Like I helped on the Transformers movies, get robots that were building size downtown. I mean, it was the logistics of moving stuff around, I think maybe was a precursor for what the hell I'm going through now with moving frozen like products it. around. Yeah. But, um, that was kind of the start. And I always tell people it's an overlooked trade, but transportation is a critical one because you have to know a lot about everything to do it right. Yeah. And I think it made me a more systemic thinker and probably made me more equipped to be a good business owner. Cause you really, as an entrepreneur, it's not okay to just say, Oh, your passion is making chocolate. Okay. Yeah. Well, people that you're employing don't give a shit about your passions, right? They want to make sure they're getting paid. So if you're not good at accounting and your passion, then it's never going to work, right? So I think having a holistic systemic background was one thing. I think the other thing that was really beneficial to me was as I kind of moved through the transportation sector and finally got to my last stint was at Audi. It was transformational because I'd always said, as I kind of grew into my career and I realized where I wanted to end up, I knew that I wanted to end up in a role where I felt like I was going to build something, right? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily physically, but something, either myself or a business or a department, something. I wanted to be known for some kind of a legacy. And in my mind, the best people that did that really, really well were luxury brands. So getting into Audi was, to me, the pinnacle, a check the box, right? Like that's where I needed to be because I wanted to understand how you build a brand and convince people to pay so much more for something, right, than it might be worth. Yes. So I ended up learning a lot about brand building. I learned a lot about how do you make a brand? Honestly, it starts with the employees. My first week just so happened to land on the all-employee meeting. I've always been into cars, but not like that. But you walk out of those meetings and you literally want to go fight a war, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just felt so empowered. You just felt like you were the sexiest person on the planet working for the sexiest company on the planet and no one could touch you. That thing I really brought into Mason Dixie because I want to make sure everybody here always feels like if they were ever to leave, if we sold, if whatever happens that they always go back and say, I've never worked for a better place. Yeah, And we've had that happen. We've had, you know, first time employees, right. That joined us when it was just three of us. Right. And with this one guy, Dan, who I love to death, And, you know, he was looking for faster growth that we couldn't keep up with, right? Like startups are hard, right? Because you have siloed talents and skills and there's not a lot of upward mobility all the time because you're moving so quickly. You need to pull managers in. So when he left, I mean, we still have him at Christmas parties. We still invite him to family functions, to company events. We still say that he works there and he literally will always say there's been no better place he's ever worked. And he doesn't think he'll ever find another place like that. And to me, that's like, that's everything. But I think some of those attributes really, really came into play. And then I I worked for a phenomenal 
he was in comms and PR, but I worked for a phenomenal guy named Joe Jacuzzi who used to work for Pepsi. He ended up going to General Motors, but he was such a phenomenal orator. And then I realized like to be a good business leader, you can't just be good at what you do, right? You can't just be a straight A student with your nose in the books. You really need to know how to speak, rally, motivate, right? You can't just be a name on a page. Then you're just an executive CEO. You could be hired at any company, right? But to really make a brand and make a company, you have to be a personality. You have to be a motivator. You have to be a coach. And I think working for someone like him really brought that forward to me. And I tried using all of those lessons learned in brand building, both internally and externally to Mason Dixie. That's incredible. I mean, it's incredible that you knew that so early on because of the experience that you had. Because I think sometimes entrepreneurs don't know those things because they haven't experienced them because they start out as entrepreneurs and they're trying to figure out all the things and it takes a long time to realize that you actually need people behind you that are really believing in what you're doing and following you. So that's that's very cool. At what point, I mean, I read a lot about your philosophy on capital raising and partnerships and stuff. At what point did you realize that you needed to do a bigger raise than you did on your Kickstarter? We didn't raise any capital for quite some time. We were bootstrapped until about 2018. The only reason, well, it wasn't probably the best thing to do, but it was convenient that you had a cash basis company like a restaurant yeah, and a cruel based company like a product company, because we were able to use the cash flows from the restaurant to fund us for quite some time. But then when the frozen business outgrew the revenues from the restaurant, that's when the crunch started happening. And so Ross and I went into heaves of personal debt trying to keep up, but we didn't know. Like Again, thought this was going to be a great tchotchke instead of a t-shirt, right? I didn't think this was going to be what it was. And so it wasn't really, I was just feeding the fire, right? And so it finally came to the point where we wanted to take on a lot more stores. There were tons of demand and the pace of growth was still over 200% year over year in the stores we were in. So in order to finance that, I was like, I need something. I need something. So we took in our first million dollars, which most of that actually went to the restaurant, to be frank, because we were moving it, right? We were separating the company, we were moving the restaurant out, we had separate investors, cleaned it up. But our cash utilization has always been pretty phenomenal. I mean, with only 300,000, I'd say out of that million, we grew 4X revenue. We've always kind of paced ourselves that you only take in capital at a rate that matches and sustains the growth to the next point that you want to hit. I think a lot of times it's hit or miss, right? Early stage companies can do, they can work magic where they go and create a crazy high valuation and they can take in a lot of money on their seed round. And if you're lucky enough to do that, great. But the only thing you face is down rounds after that though, right? If like, if you don't hit, let's just say you come out the gates and you're worth 10 million. If you don't hit 10 million, right? It's really hard to get to raise capital. You're going to lose a lot of you know, dilution. So yes. I think if I could do anything over though, I'm even as smart as I've become on fundraising, it's virtually impossible to really get as good at it until you really have firsthand experience going through it. I really do wish that I was more equipped to really think more strategically in the beginning about what are some other ways we could have done this, right? But the growth was so quick. We needed money quickly. This is typically the entrepreneurial investment challenge, right? You need money quickly. But I was really lucky. I, I kissed Every frog I could, I think I interviewed like 120 VCs and investment groups. And, you know, I ended up finding incredible partners who saw that I wasn't just trying to 
build a flipper home. I really wanted to build something. And that means that you need a strong foundational financial strategy and you need to be smart. Like one of the things I hate about fundraising today is people treat it like either a gambling game or like a home investment. And it's really not how it works. At the end of the day, people are out to make money on their money. You're just a vehicle for that. And if you don't understand that, things get really dicey. So for us, we were really lucky because I chose to really, one, I picked investors that had foundational values, same to mine, that were inspired by the trials and tribulations of who even I am, right? As a woman, a daughter of immigrants, self-made, self-taught, self-funded, there's a lot there. And most of my investors are actually new money. They're the first in their generation to earn wealth. And in their way, they're giving it back. They also really value women. I had one investor tell me, he told me I shouldn't repeat it, but I, I love the byline. But he said, you know, his HR rule when he was CEO was a few good men, dot, 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 only a few. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he said that women made such better strategic thinkers, cooperators, team workers, focused. So they just truly believe in the power that women could hold in leadership roles. So I've never, ever had an intellectual battle over values and my investors. And I think that's something really important. People need to realize your investors are just as legally obligated as a husband. Mm-hmm. They're the same on paper. You own assets together, you know, just a little different because you don't need to sleep together. That's the only thing, right? Yeah. But it's really important that you court them the right way or you could really get into a bad situation. I think that's really important advice for people because I think when you're Like you said, when you're looking for capital, it's usually because you need it really quickly. It's not because you have all the time in the world to figure it out and go through the process. And so the temptation to take money from anyone who will give you money is pretty huge for a lot of people. And then I've I've talked to so many people who regret the way they did it and are trying to get out of relationships. And it's just like you said, it's like getting divorced, but maybe even worse because there's no good feelings. It's just money feelings. So if you haven't, you know, if you haven't found an actual partner who has the same beliefs as you. So I think that's a really interesting thing to do. Are you at the point where you feel like you're going to scale again? I mean, I know you just got this incredible Marriott partnership that you announced. And so you're obviously still really growing at a fast pace. Oh, yeah. I actually recently attended this Wharton Business Executive Education Program. And one of the key differentiators that really stuck out to me was be careful when you say scale and when you say grow. Really, most of the time people really think really think scale is growth, but they're actually two different things. You can continue to grow at a loss, right? Scale is when you can actually put in less to make more. Mm-hmm. And so where we've always been on the on the grand slam search of scaling, I think everybody is. I think this next year is going to be a huge opportunity for us to actually scale the volume that comes from clients like Marriott is so immense that it helps us actually finally get there. Um, So yeah, I do hope this year is the big scaling year, but from a growth perspective, absolutely. We've, we've maintained three, three and a half X growth year over year. And that's really, you know, the momentum I want to be able to keep. And I I think it's totally feasible. Do you think that you'll ever open a restaurant again? Never say never, (laughs) but I have to say, I, I take my hat off to every restaurateur that stuck it through COVID. It's not easy. And they're still dealing with the repercussions today. And they are so resilient and creative. And being out of that process makes it really hard to think about opening a restaurant right now. 
But in a few years, you never know. Their thought leadership will create new opportunities for restaurateurs. And you never know. Might take another swing at it. It's interesting because you did, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you were so happy when COVID happened that you also had the other part of the business and that you didn't have to start it at that moment in time because that seems like it could have been really, really tough. Oh, yeah. COVID-19 has been a very interesting experience for us, right? Because from the restaurant perspective, you know, closing our business is never fun. But, no, no. you know, the, the flip side was all the growth that came out. We were lucky, right? We weren't in produce or something like that where it got really constrained. But frozen food still is on an all-time high in terms of growth and trial. And it's one of those right place, right time type things where it's bittersweet, right? Like it's not really great to brag that you did well in the middle of the global pandemic, but, but it was nice to be able to be a solution for people. Yeah. It's crazy how quickly we've moved through two years, but I remember in the dumps of it all, how depressing it was to know you couldn't go to your favorite restaurant or bar. You couldn't see your family. You couldn't do anything you normally would do without being scared for your life. And so Yes. Being able to offer some ray of sunshine, right? Like yeah, absolutely. go ahead and eat that scone, right? Like have six biscuits. Who cares, right? The world's on fire. Yeah. I think people really got behind the lightheartedness of realizing that it was okay to feed your soul first, right? And I think that's been something that's been an, a lasting thing that I think we've kind of tried to capture. And I think next year in our marketing efforts too, we really want to encapsulate that a lot better than we have in the past. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys did something. I mean, you can say whatever you want about being successful during COVID. There were plenty of brands that were successful during COVID that didn't do good things for people. And you guys were doing something really important. You were giving people, first of all, food that they needed that was hard to come by. And then also something that made them feel really good at a time when people felt really, 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 really bad and scared and lonely. And so, I mean, when you think about all those things, what a gift you gave to people to be able to have that. And so, I don't know. I would feel really good about that, actually. That's pretty amazing. I want to ask you one more thing, because I've read about you and your belief on mentoring women. And I think this is such a, a great topic to talk about and also something that people just don't think about that often. I mean, I think there are so many assumptions that the world has changed dramatically for women and it's all good now. And it isn't, right? As a business owner, I still go to meetings with big agencies, groups, and with management teams from my the brands that I work on. And I'm still the only woman in the room, probably more than half the time. So I just want to hear a little bit about the mentoring that you're doing and your sort of philosophy on that, because it's still so, so important. Well, people forget that women are only in the roles that we're in as of 1980. Yeah. Like the first time a woman could actually have a desk job and grow into a career. Yeah. So think about it. I mean, it's very young, one, two. So one of the things that myself and even Ross, who, even though he is a man, he is a gay man. So he understands the trials and tribulations. And he, yeah. he and I both said very early on that it was really important for us to uphold women in leadership positions. And I'm really proud of that. Even, even internally here of all of our executives, there's like seven of us now, only one is male and that's Ross and he counts for half yeah. since he's gay. Yeah. And, you know, but he, but one of the things we've noticed is that we've got phenomenal women who started their careers as early as, you know, the seventies and they, even today being the badasses that they are, they're not equipped with a lot of skills that they should have been equipped with that men got. Right. 
Yep. Some of them had never had PL ownership. Why? Because some yep. dude had it. Some of them never had public speaking opportunities. So they have no idea how to communicate well to a grander audience, even though one-on-one, they tell you the most phenomenal stories and they can break down information like a pro, right? Women are still not equipped with the same skill sets that men are given. And I don't give a shit if you are a CEO. As a woman, you're still not as well equipped because you have not been given the training opportunities that men have had. There's still a pay gap. There's still discrimination on women of color, big time, right? So a lot of my focus has been mentoring women in a holistically realistic way. One of the things I will say I won't do, and I hate that people do, because I think it actually perpetuates that women are a certain way, is this like Shira, like support women only. Uh, The reality is we need a lot more hardline, like advice. You don't need to be in a room full of women. We all know we rock and we all know how hard it is. You got to get guys in that room. That's right. You got to say it at every male event. Every time you're the only token woman on a panel, you got to make sure you bring it home. The rest of that audience needs to understand it. Otherwise we're always going to be talking to ourselves and we're never advanced. So I give some pretty tough love when I mentor women, because I think it's something I wish more women did to me. I had an incredible mentor and she never did it intentionally, but she was always very honest and very forthright about her business. And she would talk about her problems all the time with me, which helped me realize that like, it's not just enough to be a woman owned, women certified business. It doesn't really get you far because there's still roadblocks. So that's, I think something I, I wish we had more of in the women mentorship side of things. I would agree with that completely. And I do think a lot of it's still sugarcoated. And I still think the experience of it and the reality of it is very different. Recently at a dinner where I had someone sitting across from me and an older CEO saying, I just don't think women can do the jobs that men can do when their kids are under 14. He said it at a dinner with women. And I was just like, wow, I have raised my daughter alone from when she was three till now. And I did it all on my own. I didn't have any support. And he just literally didn't care or get it. And I was just like, it was just a good reminder to me that it is not done. No. <laughs> it's not done. Yeah. No. And it never will be until men, honestly, have a baby out of their penis hole. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's point blank. They will never get that women are just blessed with this innate ability to manage multitask like a G. Men will never have that capability. So they're right. constantly going to demean. They're constantly going to put us down until we prove it. And we have to fight to prove ourselves take every example of success and pay it forward, right? Like Sarah Blakely's success at Spanx should be on everyone's freaking wall because she didn't start with a Harvard degree. That's right. right? And now she's a billionaire. So, you know, you got to figure out how to get to the top and it's at all costs. And sometimes it is ugly and sometimes it is masculine, right? And sometimes it is not how you want to do it, but we today, the women in these types of positions today are going to make it so that our daughters, our daughter's daughters will never understand this. One day this will never happen. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I also think the entrepreneur journey as a woman, it makes you have to do the things that other women don't get to do because when you're in a corporation, sometimes you just don't even get the opportunity to have the conversations and be a bitch and say how you feel. And you just can't. Well, I, was. I made sure I was always the most loud girl in the room. I feel like people should, because it is very challenging to sit there and just take it. I've never been taught to do that. My dad did a pretty good job telling us that we should think like men from a very early age. 
didn't do a great job in saying that since I didn't have any sons, right? I'm like, well, screw that. You don't have sons <laughs> to think like this. But he always yeah. did encourage us to be loud, proud, think like a man, like really make sure that we hammered home that we were in control. And he always said, be a leader, not a follower. And he always said, if someone punches you, you punch them back harder, right? Like those are things that women are not taught. No, not at all. We would be advanced at the same pace that men do because they're taught those things. Yeah. And I think that's something, I mean, we don't have to stoop to those levels, but I think having that same tenacity would really benefit and have more women advance in these positions if they could. I couldn't agree with you more. I want to be respectful of your time, but this is so freaking awesome. I love everything you said. I want to just know, is there anything you didn't get to talk about that you want to talk about or anything you want to say as advice to a, an entrepreneur or someone who's struggling through a, you've had many, many, many challenges. You talked about a lot of them, but just anything you want to add. In dark times, it's really easy to give up. And especially for women, because of all the things that we just said, right? Especially women of color, because of all the things we said times 10. So yeah. I think one takeaway that I always remember is actually from a guy I worked with back in the transportation engineering days, this guy named Pastor Casanova, believe it or not, that was his name. And he was working so hard to get his wife over from Mexico. He's a Mexican American, but his wife, he met on a whim on a vacation and he fell in love with her. He wanted to get her over. And it was so, so hard. He was really down one day and he said, you know, but I picked myself up last night and I said, what have I actually failed at that I gave 100% of myself to? So I'm going to get her here. And, and, you know, lo and behold, six months later, he did. And that really stuck to me. It was like the most simple phrase. But how often do we really tell ourselves, have we succeeded or failed, right? Most of the time, it's so easy to go negative and say, oh, I didn't do it exactly how I wanted. So it's failure. No, 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 no. If you're still going, it's just a learning lesson, right? It was a stumbling block. You solutioned, you moved on, you problem solved. It's really important to pivot every bad fork in the road, you have to figure out how to pivot. Who says you have to go one or the other way? Why don't you go this way? Yeah. Right. I think that's the mentality we really need to get into our brains, especially in this topsy-turvy world we live in, to not be discouraged by all the roadblocks we're going to continue to face for quite some time here and really take it as an opportunity to think, how do I create another lane in that fork in the road? Right. Yeah. Well, you certainly have done that. And what an inspiration I would say you are. And I'm really excited to get this launch because I think so many people are going to just love it and feel, you know, I mean, I feel like going out and kicking someone's ass right now. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) I might, I just might, who knows? Yeah. So that's really exciting. Thank you so much. I know that it, it was a challenge to make this happen, but I really appreciate it. No, thank you, Chris. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.